Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the City Church Lenten podcast series we are calling Again and Again, God's Sacred Refrain. During this series, we will emphasize the God who meets us, comes to us, never gives up on us, and is for us again and again. During Lent, we are also being invited into the spiritual practice of walking with Jonathan Stahls of Intrinsic Paths. Each week, Jonathan will be sharing a podcast, video, and list of resources to help you on your journey of walking through Lent. You can find out more at citychurchsf.org walking. Again, thank you for listening to this series. And if you would like to support the work of City Church, you can do so by visiting our website at citychurchsf.org give. Finally, we would love to see you at our weekly live stream service at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Grace and peace to you in this season of Lent. Scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 20 to 34. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? The word of the Lord. Let us pray, friends. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here. Help us to believe that you have seen to it that we are here today, hearing this worship service, participating in it, and now this word from you. Give us grace to receive it. Help us to believe you see us in all of our complexity. And your response is always to move towards us, to love and restore and heal. Give us grace to believe that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I didn't know it would be the last time I'd ever hear his voice. We were taking a walk in the hills of South Carolina with the rest of my siblings. My brother-in-law, Ted, was only about three years older than me. He'd had health concerns, but he seemed fine. 
and a few months later, he would tragically drown. I didn't know it was the last conversation we would have. How could I? Has this happened to you with the sudden loss of a loved one or a friend? When you look back on it and go, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know that'd be the last time I'd hear them speak. In some ways, this is a dynamic that's taking place in this text today. A whole lot of people didn't know that this would be the last time Jesus would actually speak publicly, if indeed this was public at all, until later when he is nailed on a cross. Some Greek-speaking Jews had, were in town for the festival of the Passover, wanted to see Jesus. And there was a lot of noise in the system about Jesus. You know, there were the rumors floating around that he had raised someone from the dead, Lazarus, just a few days, later, few days earlier, which led the religious authorities, if you go back and read that account in John chapter 11, it says from that day on they planned to put him to death. And then there was the turning over of tables, which will really be strike two and three for Jesus. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we'll talk about next week, had also caused quite a lot of noise. And things were winding down for Jesus, what he called his hour. His hour. So as post-Lazarus curiosity abounds, in walks these Greeks, and they go to Greek-speaking Philip, who went to Andrew, who went to Jesus. And it appears from the text, the Greeks never got their audience. But if they were eavesdropping, they heard Jesus say some of the last things he will say publicly. Because as I said, his next public words will be after he is nailed to a cross. And they use this phrase when they come forward. They say, sir, we would see Jesus. And I've actually seen that etched into the inside area of a pulpit on more than one occasion over my 30 years of being a pastor. Whenever I see it, I always think, were they expecting Jesus today? Because all they're going to get is Fred. Sad. <laughs> but I get the point. The point is, Fred, get out of the way of yourself so people can see Jesus. And of course, to that I say, amen. But what will Jesus say to you today in response to this request to see him? I'm assuming everyone here is asking this question to one degree or another. I'm here to see Jesus. Debbie Thomas, in her always thoughtful weekly essay on the lectionary gospel text and others, says this, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. On its face, it's such a simple request, but it cuts to the heart of spiritual growth, stagnation, and defeat. Do we want to see Jesus? Where does desire register in our spiritual lives right now? During this season of Lent, are we asking to see the Jesus we've heard so much about? If yes, which Jesus do you wish to see? Do we wish to see the teacher, the healer, the peacemaker, the troublemaker? Why are we interested? It's a good question to ask during Lent. So Jesus' response to this request is to finally overturn something he had used throughout the Gospel of John to essentially avoid people and their questions and their demands. Jesus was on his own time frame. Because over and over again, you'll say, see Jesus say, especially in this Gospel of John, in response to a question or a demand for clarity, he will say, 
my hour is not yet come. He does that in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. He does it in John chapter 7. He does it in John chapter 8. All sorts of events are halted because Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. Until John chapter 12, where now, finally, there's been this great entrance into Jerusalem. There are some Greeks who want to speak to Jesus, and Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when he says that, he's talking about the death that he knows that is right around the corner. But he's saying something kind of upside down when you think about it. He uses terms and he says things like he's about to be exalted or glorified or bear much fruit. And, not but, but and, he's going to lose his life. And because of this, his soul is troubled. He's entering into the Passion Week, what we now call the Passion Week. And he knows what's around the corner. The cross. A cross he'll be nailed to, but also a cross he invites us to take up ourselves when he says, whoever serves me must follow me, in verse 26. This is Jesus unfiltered, unhidden, finally. His shortest and most easy to understand parable about the seed that must die to produce fruit is starting to tear away the mystery of where this is all headed. His death, like any Jew who spoke against the empire, was imminent and sure. But unlike any other Jew, something larger is going on. Jesus describes it like this. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. This is what the text tells us, leaving really no doubt to what he's referring to. In that phrase, I will draw all people to myself, is so fascinating to me as I studied this week. Why? Why is something as ghastly and barbaric as the cross something that draws people in? How could the cross the Roman Empire's way of not just killing a person, there were lots of better and easier and more cost-effective ways to kill someone. It was a way of killing the ideas of that person as well. It's a killing off of resurrection or insurrection of any kind. It was a way of setting an example that whoever takes up this person's ideas, this will be your fate. Now, why would that attract? Some might say, well, it attracts because there's a resurrection after this particular crucifixion. Okay, that's fair enough. No doubt, lifted up refers to a cross, but also the body of Jesus being lifted up after death. But I believe the cross is primarily what's in view here. And I would contend that the uniqueness of Christianity is not found, actually, in the resurrection. That's something I used to actually say and preach. But I would say now that really the uniqueness is the cross. The cross is the epicenter. The epicenter of and the peculiar scandal of Christianity. Or as the Apostle Paul said, 
We preach Christ crucified, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. See, there's nothing particularly unique about a religion that worships a resurrected God. The ancient world actually had plenty of religions with resurrected gods. But Christianity has as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. I mean, Easter alone does not make Christianity unique. It is with Good Friday and Easter together that we find the uniqueness of Christianity. We can't, we mustn't reduce the cross to some heady atonement theory. It must remain a scandalous enigma so that we take a second and a third, and I would say a lifelong look at the cross. Because on the cross, we have a God who will so identify with the pain, the injustice, the brutality, and the scapegoating of the world that Jesus believes and knows this will indeed draw all people to himself. A God who suffers, this bears a second look. And so a few reasons why I think the cross draws all people to Jesus. One, the cross is inclusive of everyone because the work of God in Jesus is for everyone. Jesus says all people will be drawn to him. People who fail, people who don't get it, people who do get it, whatever that means. People of all skin colors, people of all sexual orientations and gender identities and expressions, people of all socioeconomic classes, people of all beliefs and backgrounds. If you are made in the image of God, the cross is for you. The cross tells you that God is for you. The cross tells you that God would rather die than kill his enemies. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Secondly, the cross is the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure. I mean, here's a big question. What is God like? I suppose this is the biggest question theology can ask. And the answer is, God is like Jesus. Which is to say, the God we worship is a crucified God. Not some version of a powerful, glorious, triumphant God, but a betrayed tortured, and crucified God. The worship of a God nailed to the tree was the original scandal of the Christian faith. As Hans Urs von Balthasar said, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Jesus' entire life was a demonstration of the true nature of God. As Jesus heals the sick, forgives the sinner, receives the outcast, restores the fallen, and supremely as he dies on a cross forgiving his killers, he reveals what God is like. To see Jesus is to see the Father. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The cross is also divine solidarity with all human suffering. Anyone who has been through great suffering has surely wondered where God is in the midst of their suffering. So a savior 
who screams on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is surely someone who feels that same sense of abandonment, even when Jesus most certainly was not abandoned on the cross. Jürgen Moltmann was raised as a secularist in Germany during World War II. At the age of 20, while serving as a soldier in the German army, Moltmann was captured and placed in an English prisoner of war camp. Reading the New Testament as a prisoner of war, the young secularist encountered Jesus' cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he thought, here is someone who understands me. In time, Jürgen Moltmann became a Christian and eventually one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. When I am lifted up, I will draw, draw all people to myself. The cross is also the shaming of something the scriptures call the principalities and powers. All the systems of oppression that dehumanize, that protect an oppressive status quo that keeps abusers in power and hurts those who are without power. The cross tells us that this is not the way of Jesus and of the God Jesus reveals. Rather, in the cross, we have the hope of oppression being turned upside down. If this cross reveals a God who, while being crucified, is actually reconciling the world to himself? Well, this means that while being crucified, this means that in the midst of the most horrible circumstances we can, that we, enjoy, that we endure, we can also hope that God is bringing about a redemption and resurrection that we cannot now envision. It means that systems of terror, whether it be the violence of the Roman Empire or the violence and terror of white supremacy, it will not, it must not have the final word. It's the cross that is inspired and given hope to groups of people who are enslaved, colonized, oppressed, dehumanized, imprisoned, beaten, mocked, and murdered. It is the cross that has created phrases like making a way out of no way. Because in Jesus, a way was made out of no way. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The cross is the enduring model of co-suffering love that we are to follow. This is the meaning of those who love their life will lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am there will my servant be also. See, we are to join God in repairing the world using this same model of co-suffering love. Standing in solidarity with our AAPI siblings. Standing in solidarity with any marginalized group. Sharing the stigma of all stigmatized groups. This is following Jesus in co-suffering love. This is why the cross is the beauty that will save the world. 
for anyone who has not been completely infected with the love of money, the love of privilege, and the subsequent numbing of their souls, for anyone who has any inclination to see the world changed for the causes of equity, justice, and human rights for every image of God in this world, for everyone who cries out for liberation, the cross shouts, there's another way of being in the world that makes room for everyone. Jesus took an instrument of torture and turned it into a vehicle of hospitality and communion for all people everywhere. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And lastly, the cross is the eternal moment in which the sin of the world is forgiven. Good Friday is not about divine wrath. Good Friday is about divine love. Good Friday is not about divine wrath. Good Friday is about divine love. It is not where we see how violent God is. It is where we see how violent our civilization is. The cross is not where God finds a whipping boy to vent his rage upon. The cross is where God saves the world through self-sacrificial love. Brian Zahn talks a lot about this, and he says, when the cross is viewed through the theological lens of punishment, God is seen as an inherently violent being who can only be appeased by a violent ritual sacrifice. Those who are formed by this kind of theology harbor a deep-seated fear that God is a menacing deity for which they need to be saved. But is it true? Is God a vengeful giant whose essential nature requires him to vent his wrath upon sinners with omnipotent fury? Or is God co-suffering love whose very nature is to offer unconditional forgiveness? The cross is not what God does in order to forgive. Instead, the cross is what God endures as God forgives. The cross is not what God does in order to forgive. Instead, the cross is what God endures as God forgives. Jesus on the cross recycles the violence of state lynching into love, mercy, and forgiveness. It is there where he has a word for the Greeks who came to see him that day, finally. And that word is for us too, as Christ upon the cross says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself indeed. I don't know what you wish to see in Jesus today, but I believe by God's guidance, and here we are with this particular text today that we're looking at. And the answer God has for you is to look at Jesus embracing the journey to Jerusalem and a Roman cross where God is revealed to be for you no matter who you are or what you've done. Where God is revealed to show you co-suffering love is the very nature of God and offers unconditional forgiveness to invite you to follow with a life of co-suffering love, joining God to repair this world. 
where God on the cross is forgiving the sin of the world and reconciling not himself to the world, but the world to God's self. No longer counting people's sins against them, as 2 Corinthians 5.19 says. And so here, at this fifth Sunday of Lent, this is the good news. Again and again, Jesus draws us to himself. To behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the solid ground we stand on. Stark, holy, strange, beautiful. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, give us grace to see that on the cross you're not exercising wrath so that you can somehow change your mind about how you feel about us. But rather on the cross, you're revealing yourself to be co-suffering love, changing our mind about you. Give us grace today to see how you are for us. Give us grace today to see in the midst of our crucifixions, whatever they may be today, that there is resurrection and redemption in ways that we cannot yet envision and that we can hope. Give us grace today to take up our cross and follow you and join you in the repairing of this broken world. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.